0: You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists.
1: Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky, episode 49. I'm Jennifer, and today I am joined by Wendy Anderson. She is a spatial ecologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife, and we're going to be talking about her job um, with Texas Parks and Wildlife as a scientist. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to have someone on who uh, does work in the field. Um, we talk a lot about the environment and the research that scientists come up with, but we don't really talk about the tools that they use and how they come up with this data. So um, we've got a real-life scientist with us today, <laughs> and we're going to learn how uh, the magic happens. So, um, Wendy, can you kind of start by you know telling us a little bit about yourself, how you, how you got um, where you are, what your background is?
0: yeah, thanks, Jennifer. I'm so excited to be on the show. So um, I just wanted to give a little bit b- background for myself. So, as you said, on my payroll sheet, um, it actually says I'm a spatial ecologist for Texas Parks and Wildlife, and I am in the Landscape Ecology Program, which is in the administrative and research side of the Wildlife Division. But whenever I tell people that I'm a spatial or sorry, a GIS specialist, they kind of look at me strangely and they don't really understand because what is GIS? What does that mean? What does a specialist in GIS do? What does that have to do with plants or wildlife or parks? And they just kind of quiet. They get quiet and they don't understand and they don't ask any more questions. If they do know what GIS is, they'll often say, oh, yeah, you're a cartographer. And then they imagine me with like a cute little safari hat, a quill in my hand, and like a spyglass, which is not the case at all. Um, Indiana Jones, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, also, in addition to that, whenever I tell people that I work for the Landscape Ecology Program, they assume that we study which landscaping plants would be best sold at local Home Depots. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And so, usually, instead of saying I'm a GIS specialist, I usually tell people that I'm a spatial ecologist. So, in the simplest terms, I analyze ecological data. And my science deals with the science of where. And let's see, let's talk about my job, if that's okay, for a second. <laughs> yeah, <for> uh, sure. <laughs> So my work right now involves taking all sorts of different data that is important ecologically, from soils data to precipitation to land cover to temperature around the year to elevation to plant community information to locations of streams and we use all of this data to monitor and model the ecosystems of texas from coast to coast border to border so in our program the landscape ecology program we provide ecologically focused geospatial data for state and federal agencies as well as the public and our Our team incorporates these ecological principles, our field data collection, our advanced GIS technology, remote sensing techniques, and we also develop user-friendly apps to monitor the landscape and promote conservation planning.
1: So it sounds pretty geeky like this show. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect then. So um, how did you end up in this job? Like like what what made you decide to, to pursue this route or did you just kind of discover
0: it in, in your studies and along the way? Yeah. So you were saying before that you kind of went around about in your career. And I would say that I kind of went in a roundabout career to get to where I am today. Um, wow. I would say I grew up in the suburbs. I don't come from a natural resources background or family, but I did watch a lot of Fern Gully as a child. And <laughs> I developed a really strong love for the outdoors and nature and bugs and birds. Um, I never thought that there was a career in that. Um, so let's see. Um oh, when I was... In high school, I remember there was a distinct moment. I was in an AP biology class, and I hope that my teacher eventually listened to this episode because <laughs> it, it would make him laugh. We were watching Planet Earth, and there was a segment on um, snow leopards. And in the segment, they talk about how there were these scientists and conservationists who devoted their entire life career to conserving the species. And I, it blew my mind that these people could get paid to be outside looking at snow leopards and saving the world, like that was in, an incredible moment for me. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do biology, but I didn't really know how to get there. I was just like, well, I'll just go to school for biology. Um, so I went to Indiana University for um, – my undergraduate degree. And, um, I fell in love with tropical biology. So whereas snow leopards are Arctic and mountains, I really wanted to be in the jungles of Central America. So I knew I had to learn Spanish. Um, and, um, let's see after my degree, um, I realized that while Central America definitely, has a need for some conservation efforts. I also realized that there is so much local conservation to be had here in America. I instead redirected my passion from tropical jungles to my local area. So I um, started working with my local, uh, at the time, Indiana Department of Natural Resources to do more outdoor environmental education. And I interned with them and worked on a, um, waterfowl refuge, um, a resting area. Um, and I realized through my internships with the Indiana department of natural resources that I needed a lot more education because my biology degree, um, was catered more towards medicine rather than, um, ecology. So I went back to school and I, um, got my dual master's degree. So I have a master's of science in environmental science and a master's of public affairs from Indiana University. And while I was in grad school, I hustled. I had my hand in every pot and every single conservation group in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, so I interned and volunteered with the Nature Conservancy, the Sassafras Audubon Society. I managed a fish and crayfish lab. I managed a uh grassland restoration and ecology lab. I did research on dark eyed juncos. Um, I did conservation for uh, urban woodlands. And um, I just tried to get as much experience as I could so I could be the best candidate for an environmental science job. And so my mission at that point in life was if I couldn't get straight A's, then I will be the most well-rounded, most experienced person I could possibly be. And uh, I guess I didn't really answer how I got here um, with Texas Parks and Wildlife. But uh, when I was in Indiana, there was one winter where um, it was 2015. There was a negative 40 degree wind chill. Ugh. Yeah, it was it was awful. And we were doing field work, and we were picking insect larvae out of detritus, so packed, frozen um, packs of leaves with our bare hands, and. <laughs> after that, I was like, I'm getting out of the Midwest. I'm going back to Texas. So <laughs> I made sure that after I graduated, I um, applied for a lot of jobs and um, got a few um, offers and ended up taking a job with Texas Parks and Wildlife as a botanist at the time. Okay. That's an interesting uh, route. So, so then you ended up
1: um, doing that and, and I guess uh, kind of working your way into this
0: position? Yeah, so it was a botanist with the landscape ecology program. Um, this botany job was was really great. I've really appreciated my time as this botanist. So it was 100% travel, 100% field work. And I studied and looked at and f- researched where plants were in Texas. Um, and specifically we were monitoring where plants were when And in what grasslands. So we were specifically interested in grasslands of Texas. Um, so I was able to see the sunset every single night in grasslands across the state. And it was really beautiful. I really appreciated my time as a botanist. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be, um, able to apply for a GIS specialist job within my same team. So, um, I ended up getting offered that job and, um, since then, as a GIS specialist, I have been working on a few different projects. So with Texas Parks and Wildlife, we um, have been doing remote sensing to catalog open water, so like ponds, lakes, and rivers, as a part of a project to find habitat for critically endangered species called the Houston toad. And we also did a similar project for finding habitat for a threatened species called a crawfish frog. And um, our next project is going to be improving our capabilities to remotely sense different types of grasslands across the state. So how can we, using aerial imagery, using different soil types, using different soil temperatures and precipitation, and all of our 30,000 field data points, figure out is this field of grasslands, a different plant community from this field of grasslands without being there in person? So that's our next project. And I'm really excited to um, to tackle that. <laughs> that's neat. It sounds like um, a job that is different.
1: You know, every day is different and and you're always working on um, things that are challenging you. And, and that's great.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate having a job that is both like A puzzle every single day, but also I feel like I am improving the world around me and um, I feel really lucky to have a job like that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad
1: you shared all that because um, I'm always interested in hearing how people get where they are because very rarely do we end up in um, the field that we (laughs) go to school for these days, it seems like. Um, we were talking before the show and I, you know, was saying I have a bachelor's in history, but I went, um, and worked in higher ed and then I worked in, uh, communications and then economic development. And now I am back in school in a geography program. So, um, you know, it just goes to show that one, you don't always end up on the path you, you think you're going to be on or two. um, Sometimes, you know, you, you can get into um, a position by starting out somewhere else and kind of uh, learning on the job and, and getting those skills. Um, because, the, I mean, my last couple jobs, that's that's what happened. You know, I kind of learned as I went or I volunteered and I ended up learning the things I needed. So um, I, I say all that just to kind of encourage people out there um, who may be kind of lost or trying to figure out what they're doing. I'm one of them <laughs> at the moment. Um, and just remembering that, you know, like you said, uh, trying different things and, and having your hands in all these different pots to kind of figure out what you want to do, and then um, you you meet people along the way too, and you build your network. So,
0: yeah, for sharing all that. <laughs> yeah, it seems like everyone I work with they also took a roundabout way to get where they are. So it seems more and more like people need to have a diverse background of trying different things and finding their own path, rather than they went to school for X got a job in x and then they retire in the exact same career. I feel like that's more and more rare these days for sure.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was actually having this conversation with a group of people earlier earlier about how many skills you you need these days that are not seemingly not even related to the workforce. Like coding is something that they say, "Oh, that's that's a skill that everyone's going to need, you know, or or already should should know." Um and you know, I had to learn graphic design and like little bit of web design in my last job, things that I never, you know, thought about, never had any interest in, but like, you just never know. Um, But those things can also, you know, serve you down the road for another job or another opportunity, so. um, So speaking of, you know, skills and tools that you need to kinda um, move ahead or do different different kinds of work, uh, what are some of the tools that you use to help you communicate the data that you guys collect and other important information? Oh, good question.
0: So I have to self-promo here. Um, One of my favorite tools to communicate ecological data is actually produced by my landscape ecology program. Um, I wish I could talk about it for the entire hour because it really needs the entire hour to talk about it. But it is called the Texas Ecosystem Analytical Mapper, which I'll just talk about as TEAM from now on. So TEAM is a free user-friendly interactive mapping tool to assist People in understanding Texas habitats. And so it is used by both professionals in the field, landowners, land managers, master naturalists. Um, It is a really fun way to figure out where you are in this world, what is happening ecologically around you. So I use it all the time when I'm hiking so I can. When I'm out in the field, if I'm out in a forest or on a trail, I can figure out what ecosystem am I in? What is the dominant plant community? What kind of plants should I expect to find here? What's happening with the soil? What is? How does the soil interact with the plant species? So it's a a, a fun tool to just figure out the world around you. So that's that's my favorite one. And I'm biased because I work on it and I present on it. But I think it's really cool. Yeah, is that um, just in Texas, though? It is just limited to Texas, um, but I believe other states are, I know um, Missouri has similar data, but they don't have this app. So we are unique in the state of Texas to have an app like this that we have developed. But yeah, no, as far as I know, no no other state has a similar app. Um, There are similar apps that do a very coarse overview about the ecology of the area. So you might be able to figure out that you are in a forest, but you could probably figure out by looking up and seeing the trees around you. (laughs) Um, But besides our Texas Parks and Wildlife team app, um, I use pretty frequently um, ESRIs, or I don't think ESRI has a um, acronym anymore, but ESRIs um, is the GIS company um, GIS stands for geographic information systems. And ESRI produces the the programs that every single GIS person needs to know. So that's ArcGIS, ArcMap, ArcPro, and Story Maps. These are so incredibly powerful that I have to plug them here. They are not user-friendly. You cannot just download it and figure it out. You have to take a college course or two or get a degree in it to learn how to use them. Um, so when I'm talking to someone who does not have a background in GIS, I usually encourage them to use Google Earth. Um, Google Earth is very user-friendly. It's, it's free and it's a great way to display this spatial data. And so with that, there's a number of other free resources that I'll recommend. So um, nearly every single um, federal agency has a mapping tool that they can deliver their data. So for example, USDA, the US Department of Agriculture has the USDA plants database. So every single plant that has ever been cataloged in the United States has a range map. And so you can figure out in your county, the list of every single plant that has ever been cataloged in your county. Um, wow. it's, it's really powerful. So that was um, uh, like, if I go traveling, if I go to a park anywhere in the United States, I could figure out what plants to put on my botany checklist because I'll, (laughs) instead of going birding, you can go botanizing. Um, Oh my gosh, that's awesome. I've never heard of that, but I love it. (laughs) Another one that's really powerful um, that is used very frequently in the field of environmental science is the NRCS Um, web soil survey. So anyone can go to their web soil survey and download and visualize soil data, which influences everything. It influences how much water you get, like stream information, plant information, how well your crops will grow. uh, It influences civil engineering. So everyone uses the web soil survey. Also, there's a lot of places that conglomerate a lot of GIS data that I have to plug so the texas natural resources information system or tenris conglomerates a lot of this data and also there is a u.s government gis database where you can look at every single gis data that is published in our nation and these tools are so helpful for providing data wherever you are in north america
1: yeah. So those are things that you use in your job, but the average person could also access and take advantage of and learn all this data. Yes, exactly.
0: Yes. And so a lot of these are user-friendly and um, you can learn them within five minutes.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very helpful. I, I can attest to the uh, complications associated with GIS. Um, yeah. <laughs> in my program, they decided to lump it in with a, a in a class with like five other
0: things and, and we got two days of training and I was like, Yeah, this is it. Gonna <laughs> I feel like with GIS courses, there needs to be a component of like meditation and relaxation because every okay. single GIS program has some sort of glitchy, frustrating aspect to it that you really need to incorporate mm-hmm. some sort of zen into your life if you use on a daily basis. <laughs> yes. I'm
1: glad it's not just me because hearing a professional say that, I was like, what is wrong with me? I can't no. even <laughs> Um well, good. I'm glad to know that there are more user-friendly options out there. And if anyone, um, you know, has any other uh, things that they use, feel free to let us know. Um, you know, comment on on social media or send us a message. Um, are there any other tools that you didn't mention um, that the average person uh, could use, or any open source um, software that might be, you know, fun for people to to check out, whether it's related to mapping or just any of the, the geeky-like, um, you know, naturey things that you like to do?
0: Oh, good. Oh, <laughs> um, there's so many things I want to plug here. So yeah. <laughs> uh, sit down and relax. Um, so there is a program called QGIS. I personally don't have a lot of experience with it, but for nonprofits, for individuals, this is a free open source software that lets you display, visualize, and analyze GIS information. Thanks. if you have no if you are not doing a lot of calculations if you're not doing a lot of modeling um there is a google tool called google my maps it's not google maps and it's not google earth but it's called google my maps and it's a really handy tool to create visual data so i actually made a map on Google My Maps that I share with people whenever they visit Austin because I live in Austin. And if you are familiar with Austin, there's a lot of things to do and you can't figure out what should be a priority when you're here as a tourist. So I made a map of every park, their reviews, all the best swimming locations, the best barbecue locations, and the best indoor activities for wow. the Austin area. And so I send that off to people and then they can look it over in a much easier format than reading 50 million different articles well if you don't mind we can
1: we will link to that in our show notes if you're willing to share that with our listeners great
0: yeah i would love to
1: cool so so these are things that you can do for fun or if you wanted to do more formal like project or or um official report or something even um they're kind of made
0: for everybody it sounds like yeah oh and i have one more that i need to plug um It is so powerful that everyone in the entire world should be using on a daily basis. It is called iNaturalist. Um, Mm -hmm. iNaturalist is a crowdsourced um, citizen science data collection tool. And within this citizen science data collection tool, it has machine learning to identify species in your pictures. So with, with iNaturalist, you can take a picture of a plant leaf. And it will give you the species and it is actually pretty accurate. And um, so if you're trying to learn more about mushrooms, plants, birds, wildlife around you, and you don't have any field guides, this is a really free, uh, a really awesome free tool to be able to improve your identification skills while at the same time providing data, citizen science collected data for scientists to use in conservation.
1: Yeah, I've used that app a couple times to like identify something like what is this weird looking bug or yeah! flower that is it's but, but it even does it like in weird um, times of a plant's lifespan, like not when it's a pretty flower, but when it's like completely, you know, dyed and it's a stalk with seeds or something, you know, like. Like the, the, the randomest things that you wouldn't think it could identify, like certainly it's about to fall over dead, but sometimes it, you know, like people know how to identify just based on that. And you found it was, it was pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. For the most part, there's been a couple of things that like, I didn't get any hits on, but sometimes it's like the picture quality or it's hard to get, you know, the thing you're trying to actually identify with everything behind it. So you can't always like zoom in on it. Yeah, um, cause nature, you know, like yeah, lots of green. <laughs> um, but yeah, apps like that are really cool. How do you feel about apps like all trails or other mapping apps that people use to, to hike and explore Are those pretty accurate or are they, uh, so anyways?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. So I, um, I have used a few of these apps before. Um, but I have found that a lot of the best features are behind a paywall, and I understand that this create this this type of mapping mapping effort is expensive, and you can't just give it out for free if you're a private agency. But also, I'm sad that trail information and trail reviews aren't publicly available. So um, I wish and that there was. What was that? Just gonna say it makes nature less accessible to a lot yes. of people. Yes. Yes. So I really wish that this was free, widely available data that was easy to use rather than behind a paywall. Um, That's my only gripe with that.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. And, and unfortunately we live in a capitalist society and people want to make money and I guess also need to get paid. So yeah, (laughs) Um, that's understandable, but uh, yeah, hopefully a lot more of these free, you know, programs come online and people can um, take advantage of those as well because Honestly, you know, if I'm hiking, if I have a decent signal, Google Maps uh, is pretty accurate when it comes to trails and things like that anymore. So sometimes, you know, it'll still direct you to, like, turn into a lake if you're driving, but it's, it's getting better, so.
0: Yeah, but it's amazing how far, like... On Google Maps, or I don't know, I don't have an iPhone, but I think on Apple Maps as well, you can see trail information on their their roadmaps, and so it's really really handy. So you don't get lost in the woods, and everywhere in Austin now has a signal, so I've never been able to get lost in Austin. Um, so that's very very handy. You try, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, thanks for
1: sharing all those resources and we'll link to the apps and software that she mentioned in the show notes as well. So you can go back and, and pull that if you're not able to look them all up right now. Um, OK, so let's kind of, I guess, move on to talk about science in general. Um, you know, we, we hear a lot about the importance of science and um, the need for, for science education. Um, Lately, there's also been a, a big push to to kind of incorporate the arts and, and kind of, you know, the creative, the creative aspect of the arts into that. So it's kind of what they call STEAM instead of STEM education. Um, so why do you think it's important to um, have a little of both? And um, do you have any,
0: you know, artistic endeavors that you partake in? Yeah. So I just recently discovered that STEAM thing in the last year, which blew my mind. I immediately was like, yes, of course, this should have always been STEAM rather than STEM because in order for the scientific data to be useful, it has to be used. And Mm -hmm. people only use data if they can understand it. And if scientists can't artistically convey their information in an easy to understand way, then it's not going to be used. And Mm so I've seen some amazing research and maps that that were so impactful, mostly because they incorporated artists and design into their process. And And real quick, um, for those that aren't
1: familiar, STEM is science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and STEAM adds the A's arts. Just, I realized we didn't define it before
0: we came. Thank you. Yes. Um, So in a, in a visual field like GIS, it's really easy to understand like why art and design is so important because if you have a map that your colors do not mesh well, it will be very confusing. And so you need to come in when you're displaying data with a visual, a artistic and design mindset in order to make your data understandable. Um, so that's easy to understand for for GIS. But for science in general, you need to have that either cooperating with artists or an artistic understanding in order to be able to convey your information. And I don't, I don't think, I I mean, I don't know. I haven't done too much introspection to think on this, but I do have artistic passions. I paint and I draw. Um, I mostly do, um, I can go get my painting off the wall too. Um, I, uh, like working with gouache and I like painting landscapes and plants. Um,
1: so that's, that's my Method.
0: interest. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and you, uh, from what I understand, you also cosplay, and I would say that's a
1: form of, you know, artistic expression, and um, yeah, I think we all have the, like, like different things that we're artistic about that we don't realize could be artistic, or that we're geeky about, or, you know, so, like, it's just a matter, I guess, of framing um, those interests and realizing, like, they kind of complement each other, and away, you know.
0: Yes, in a very different example, my husband is uh works in art and fabrication and making. And so his work for a really long time was working with um, foam and styrofoam sculptors and covering them with two very toxic chemicals that when combined create a very solid cement-like mixture. And it wasn't I'm sure the scientists who developed this this chemical mixture did not think that in the future it would be used to create a 20 foot Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, but <laughs> that is an application. And, um, uh, so by talking with artists and figuring out that artists can create really fun, cheap and fast and beautiful sculptures with these chemicals, they were able to expand their use and application of these chemicals. Um, And with all of the different hardware that my husband uses to apply and make his art installations, Mm -hmm. I mean, engineers had to design that and figure out what artists need and in what capacity. Um, Yeah. Well, that's a great point. And and that makes me think of our
1: mutual friend, Eugene, who is uh, addicted to 3D printing. (laughs) (laughs) But that is, uh, you know, it's very mathematical because you're, you're, kind of coding the design into the system but then it's also artistic because you're you're creating this thing that hasn't been created before or that's based on something in real life and and it's almost like you know you're, you're sculpting it um in a way um but you're yeah it's it's a perfect marriage of arts and science and um i i i think people don't realize how much both are around us all the time and it's important to, to kind of keep them side by side rather than always separate and distinct you know
0: (laughs) yeah it's important to apply both in both strictly arts field and strictly science field you really need to have a background and Mm -hmm. to understand it all
1: it's interesting too because um this is the history nerd of me coming out but like you know, you think of the Enlightenment and and people were very much both. They were poets and they were scientists and, you know, passed for science back then, but, um, <laughs> you know, or they studied math and language and all these things. So it's interesting that um, how, how we kind of got away from that and and wanted people just to specialize instead of um, really encouraging kind of cross-pollination in those fields and everything. So hopefully we can kind of get back to that. It's still important to have specialization, but um, yeah. I think too much of anything is Never a good thing. So, (laughs)
0: yeah, that just makes me think about all of the different environmental scientists throughout history, the famous ones who started conservation movements based off of their writings and their. Mm -hmm. Their books and if, if they had specifically written in technical terms and only published in, in technical journals, it probably wouldn't have started these cultural revolutions. but mm-hmm. like um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, if, if she had instead just published that as an editor's note in ecology scientific yeah. journal, would that have been an impact? Right. But by being able to convey these these principles to the general public, it had a huge impact and um i think that that is just another example of the many ways that using art and science makes it yeah. bigger than either of them yeah
1: that brings up an interesting you know point about how to communicate science that's that's always the big thing right like climate change is 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 a big topic right now and there's all these um th- th- there's always things happening in the world that scientists want to to share with people but Either a lot of the discoveries end up just kind of buried in these journals, like you said, or people try and they don't quite hit the mark with how they communicate it. Um, I was actually listening to another podcast and they talked about the movie that Netflix did recently, Don't Look Up, and how the communication of this this comet, you know, uh, destroying Earth was kind of fumbled and it resulted in like nobody really caring because – the scientists just weren't good at, like, getting the message out. And it's like, but the Earth is literally about to be destroyed by a comet, but nobody cared because, you know, the scientist was stumbling over his words or they were just, like, freaking out. So it's interesting to think about the work that goes into making it received by the other end, I guess.
0: Yeah, I haven't I haven't personally watched that show, but I've heard good things about it. So I, I don't have anything to comment on that. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, if you fumble delivering the message, it can really – kind of halt it in its tracks
1: mm-hmm. yeah and it, it can also give i guess the opponents of the, that message more ammunition against you or whatever so yeah i think thinking through um you know scientists and people and professionals in general have gotten better about uh, messaging and branding it's all about branding right <laughs> <laughs> um so okay so speaking of uh you know what we're talking about science and, and the ability for people to understand things um it's also important for not just the messenger, but for the receiver to, to be able to understand that information. So why do you think it's important for people to have a basic grasp of scientific literacy? And and I guess also,
0: what is that? I mean, what does that mean, scientific literacy to you? Yeah, um, great question. So I feel like there's there's two very opposing ways to approach this question of why is it important to have a basic grasp of scientific literacy? The first would be to answer that it's, required for us to succeed as a society in the future. So we need the next generation to understand these scientific concepts and be able to translate them to tackle different environmental and health challenges in the future. But that Mm -hmm. is a very utilitarian approach. Mm -hmm. It takes the entire passion and practicality out of science. So I I prefer the other way, which would be to talk about the importance of scientific literacy as a tool for personal and community growth. And, um, in my experience, scientific literacy has made me a better person through being able to understand and appreciate the world and society around me. So I I did a little research that the national science education standards says scientific literacy is the knowledge and understanding of scientific concepts and processes required for personal decision-making participation in civic and cultural affairs and economic productivity. So for me, it means through scientific literacy that you don't have to have all the degrees, mm-hmm. but you're able to ask the right questions to improve yourself and the world around you. And I've been doing a lot of gardening lately. So I, the, the one example I want to provide is with a gardening anecdote. Um, I noticed that my tomato plants the the edges of the leaves were were yellowing and um i if if i didn't have a botany background i may have thought why are my tomato leaves yellowing and i would have googled yellowing tomato leaves and um rather than, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Idiocracy, rather than just irrigating the fields with the sugary energy. Energy. Yeah. (laughs) Brando, it's what plants crave. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. (laughs) You might find out instead that there's not nitrogen in the soil, or not enough nitrogen in the soil, which is why the leaves are yellowing. And so from there, with Scientific literacy. Maybe you didn't, don't even know why plants need nitrogen, but you can figure out how to add nitrogen into the soil, and you will uncover a whole fun world of maybe <laughs> fertilizers and rotational cropping and composting. And before you know else. it, yeah, yeah, I'll some,
1: so, I'll say so. say to try. Yeah, F- yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: try it all and those damn tomatoes still yeah (laughs) (laughs) so just through the curiosity of trying to figure out huh weird my tomato plants are yellowing um you've improved your harvest you've improved your soil you can provide your family with fresh and delicious vegetables. You've sequestered carbon into the soil. You started composting, which reduced the amount of trash you've sent to the landfill. You've relied on less transportation to require, uh, acquire your own food. And you've provided food for pollinators. So you've improved both your yourself, your family, your pollinators in your neighborhood and the world around you just through a simple question. So that's what scientific literacy means to me is just curiosity and then figuring out how to act on that curiosity.
1: Well, and I'll just add, um I, I had a garden for a couple years, mostly covid, you know uh, related <laughs> um, like, oh, I guess I'll start the garden that I've been wanting to start now that I can't do anything else. But uh, I will say like, to me, that is like the ultimate science experiment. If you're not a scientist, starting a garden is really cool because you can try all these things and figure out what works, what doesn't, why is this one growing and this one's not, or why are the bugs going to that one and not this one. So um, since since this is a science uh, themed show, I I think um, if you're looking to maybe try your hand at something, a garden would be a fun little experiment, especially if you have kids because like they're just amazed at the changes, you know, and things that come to your garden um, magically. It's like they, I don't know how they find it, your tiny little spot of the world. And like these, these bugs and and birds just know where to find these few little plants you've planted. I think it's amazing.
0: (laughs) It is amazing. And I love seeing kids faces when they're able to pull, well, I will use my nephew as an example. My mom has this amazing garden and I love seeing my nephew's face when he pulls a carrot out of the ground and then he can just wipe off the dirt and eat it. Like he's just so thrilled by harvesting his own food. Um, I love to see it. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did a wild edibles hike at a local state park Mm. and it was really great. I love those hikes. Um, so at the beginning of the hikes, these kids, anywhere from literally a year old to, 14 or 15 years old, they're, they're like, their arms are crossed and they're like not interested at all. They're like, it's a Saturday and I'm here for an educational talk. No, thank you. And by the end of the talk, they are picking up things and eating it and asking me if it's edible. And they're asking, what is this tree? Oh, it's not edible, but like it's, they suddenly get so interested about the world around them and why this is growing here. Can I eat it? Mm -hmm. I, love to see it I love to see it it.
1: yeah it does seem like kids are like much more interested in trying new foods and in eating their vegetables if they have a part in growing them yeah Uh, they see where they come from and it's not just this mushy thing in a can but it's actually like I picked that and I planted that and you know like watered it for weeks and made it you know come to life like I think that's really cool and it doesn't just stop with kids but like it's great to ingrain those habits in them so young and then they'll grow up to be adults that like doing that too, hopefully.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, any, anything else you wanted to add? I know I kind of took us on a tangent there um, relating to scientific literacy or just understanding,
0: I guess, basic, basic concepts of. Yeah. So I wanted to just reiterate with our, with gardening and finding around own foods and with applying the the technologies of past discoveries into making art and paint and sculptures that science is fun and it is all around us. And there is infinite applicabilities of science. And by increasing our knowledge of the world around us, it connects us to each other better. We're able to, um, I guess, um, talk and communicate ourselves in different and unique new ways. And um, it makes us better people by being able to um, interpret science and use it in, in fun, unique ways. So that's, that's my little blurb on science.
1: Yeah. The only thing I would add to that um, I think having scientific literacy and understanding the process of how scientists get to the, the, the decisions or the conclusions that they come to is important because um sometimes scientists you know um they well always they learn by by failing right like you you have a hypothesis and you you disprove it or you prove it right so so sometimes when they're wrong they learn from that but that's the process of science that i think a lot of people forget is like you don't always get it right Um, a lot of times you have to fail several times and you have to disprove your own hypothesis Um, and so when people, you know, criticize, I guess, scientists for not getting it right every time, that's part of the literacy is understanding that, well, you know, we got to where we are today because they tried and tried and tried and it took a lot of, um, of attempts. So I guess hopefully that makes sense. Like scientific literacy is also understanding the process, um, and understanding that it's an imperfect process, but that we're getting better all the time. And that the suggestions from the
0: scientific community are always changing because the data is always changing. Yes, exactly. Um, By doing research and it not having statistical significance, that Mm -hmm. is research and data in and of itself. So um, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't prove anything, it is meaningful. (laughs) Right. Um, Okay. Well, I guess
1: this kind of leads naturally for me anyways to the question of how do you think we get people excited about science again like how do you get people to want to be scientists or um just you know excited to see progress in um space travel or whatever you know cool thing is happening time travel i don't know
0: <laughs> yeah um so i over the last 2 years was in a leadership program and throughout this leadership program we had to tackle a project and it was a pretty similar project. It was um rather than how to get people excited about science, it was how to make wildlife and the wildlife field more relevant. Um, so talking about relevancy in the wildlife field, how to make people who um grew up and live in the cities appreciate um the Texas Hill country or or um how to um, make people appreciate the outdoors in general. Um, so I feel that science, in order to get people excited about it has to be a tangible thing. Like you said with with NASA and launching uh, launching people off to the moon, you have to be able to go there being able to see the rocket launch and being able to look at the moon and go, "Wow, there's people on the moon. That is so cool. Um, and it has to kind of spark a sense of wonder. Um, So for wildlife and what we found, you have to get people to fall in love with the natural world around them. You have to make sure that families establish their sense of place. Where are they? Why are they? What is the natural history of this place? Were there glaciers here? How did the glaciers affect the trees that are here? Um, uh, How do we fit into the world is something – is just a natural step into the progression of falling in love with the world around you. Um, so something simple as noticing that Cardinals arrive in the spring can cause a cascade of interest into birds, into ecology, into plants, which is literally what it happened to me um, and why I'm here today. Um, family and kids need to be able to see themselves in the people who are teaching this science. They need to be- know that they can be in their idol shoes someday and that the path has been paved, and that it's possible. So I talked about getting kids interested in plants through wild edible talks because they can literally just grab a plant and put it in their mouth. Um, mm-hmm. I I love it when kids can eat dandelions for the first time. Um, or there's a, a plant that grows here um, called common bedstraw, or I call it cleavers, but it is um, also called sticky willy or sticky weed. Um, so if you pick it up and throw it at someone, it will stick through clothing like Velcro. They just think that that is so funny. Um, <laughs> and there's um, some a, a plant called the Texas prickly ash that will make your mouth go numb. Um, so just having giving kids this, these weird experiences, um, Mm -hmm. just lights up their world. Um, and I love it when they are asking, what is that? And why does it grow here? And can I eat it? Um, and I think that that sparks a curiosity in the world around them, not just in wildlife, but, but in all science. So I hope that they can take that enthusiasm back into school and, um, hopefully, um, incorporate, um, more scientific, uh, education in their future yeah yeah you're um
1: spot on when you say people need to be able to see themselves in the field Um, diversity is so important and i think slowly that's getting better but um definitely there's always work to be done when it comes to representation and um access in in the you know any field but um science especially yeah um okay so uh for anyone that is excited about science and that does want to work in your field or
0: as a scientist or researcher of any kind, um, what advice would you give them? Advice for um, someone who wants to be a scientist or researcher. So I'm going to talk specifically about ecology, environmental science and wildlife biology, because that's that's my background. Um, I if you're in high school, I encourage you to put forth your best effort. Um, uh be kind to your teachers uh, do your homework and try to go to a school with a degree program in your specific interest. so i said before that i always wanted to do environmental science and conservation and my undergraduate degree was in biology um, it was a great degree i uh, learned a lot but it was focused actually on microbiology and not applicable to wildlife biology at all um, it was preparing us for medicine so if I instead had gone to a school that actually had a wildlife program, I think I would have had a much easier time in getting to the field. So that being said, if you find yourself like I did at a school that doesn't have a specific wildlife or a degree of your choice, dedicate any available free time to volunteering or interning or working in your related field. It's important to get any experience at all. And if you can't get it in the classroom, go out and find it. Um, I would ins- encourage students um who are interested in in this to start research as soon as possible. If you find a professor at your school who does interesting research, email them and ask them if you can work or volunteer or research in their lab because I have found that researcher, researchers love it when students reach out to them and are enthusiastic about their work. And these researchers will do nothing short of helping the students succeed. So through both volunteering in the field and working with researchers, you will find that these established professionals will work with you to help you achieve your goals and will introduce you to their network to get you jobs and get you where you want to be. And so some um, advice, specific advice in my specific job is I would um, say that for those who are interested in natural resources, environmental science, wildlife, or ecology, is you have to know GIS. So again, that was geographic information science. And knowing how to operate GIS software with all of its quirks and learning curves is an unspoken requirement of all environmental science jobs. So every single job I have applied for, from internships to early career jobs to where I am now, suggested, quote unquote, suggested GIS knowledge, but did not require it. But with the presumption that they would not hire someone without GIS knowledge. So I just wanted to encourage people to go to the appropriate school, get a, get the degree that you want. Um, and if you can't, um, make up for it with experience, um, people like us, both of us found our ways to where we are in different pathways and it's never too late to start a new career.
1: Yeah. And I will definitely, um, you know, reiterate what you said about networking, the power of networking. I know people probably hear this over and over, but it's true. Like who, you know, is important and you can do that through volunteering. You can do that through formal associations and, you know, um, networking events, but um, that could be what sets you apart from the competition. Um, that or knowing GIS, obviously. If, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's recommended quote unquote, um, you'll already have a leg up. Yeah. So. Um, Well, is there, are there any other resources um, that you would share with our listeners who want to learn more about your field or just science, you know, becoming a scientist or researcher uh, or anything we've talked about in general?
0: Yeah. So I want to recommend a a social media personality. I want to recommend a program and I want to recommend a couple of books. Um, Perfect. So one of my favorite social media personalities right now Um, Is under the title, Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't. Um, The guy who runs it, his name is Joey Santori. And he's on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And he describes himself, and I quote, this is not my description, but his description of himself, a lowbrow, crass approach to plant ecology as muttered by a misanthropic Chicago Italian. (laughs) So he highlights these amazing plants he sees during his travels as a train driver. And he has this super thick Chicago accent. Um, But he just knows these plants and knows the ecology and the natural history of them. And he just presents it in such a unique way that academics don't. Um, He's just fascinating and a joy to watch. So if you have any interest in ecology, whether you are a professional in, in ecology, or if you don't even know anything at all, he's a great resource to start off with. Um, If you are in the United States, um, chances are that your state has a master naturalist program. So if you are wanting to learn more about the natural world and want to volunteer to improve the world around you without enrolling in college, there is no better way to do it than through a master naturalist program. So it differs state by state, but here in Texas, um, Master Naturalists meet monthly, so once a month for six months during their first year to learn everything about the natural world from moths to clouds to geology to botany, and then they commit to volunteering 40 hours a year in related environmental programs. Um, I actually became a Master Naturalist last year, and it is so fun, and I love it so much, and I highly recommend becoming a Master Naturalist wherever you are. And the last two books I really want to recommend are Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, which I saw that you just um, Mm -hmm. did in your book club. And the second book is How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. Mm -hmm. So Robin Wall Kimmerer is an academic botanist and approaches botany through her lens as a Native American and as someone who also loves nature. My favorite takeaway, which I read the book years ago, so this is one of the things that has stuck out to me, um, which you will have a different takeaway, but this is one thing that really stuck out to me, was when she was doing her interview to get accepted into school to study botany, they asked asked her why she wanted to enroll. And she said, I want to find out why golden rods and purple asters look so beautiful together. And the interviewer laughed, kind of mocking her. But this is like such a great example of scientific literacy. So she was Mm -hmm. passionate and bewildered by these flowers that she found in her yard, which led her to think about why these yellow and purple flowers grew next to each other and why they look so beautiful together. And it turns out there's an ecological reason behind that. Um, Mm -hmm. These flowers complemented each other and that they were attractive to bees and other pollinators. And so the beauty of these flowers started the question and the answer to it expanded her ecological knowledge. And now she's an academic professor in botany. Um, I love that book. It's my favorite book. I will recommend it to everyone.
1: It is an amazing book. I read it a couple months ago, actually hiking through Ireland, which is so like mind-blowingly beautiful. So it was just like the perfect backdrop, but, um, her voice is just like musical and, and she's so smart and everything she said was so just like, you know, enlightening. So uh, I will second that for sure. And she has a new book coming out next year, apparently. So, um.
0: oh, good. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah
0: super That's exciting great. um the second book i i will recommend um is how to do nothing by jenny odell it's um about connecting more with the world around you so where robin Wall is a botanist jenny odell is an artist but her art incorporates the art of wear so her art is about she takes snapshots of like stadiums and arranges them in a a collection. So that's just an example of her art. So she is all about connecting to the world around you, how to escape the attention economy, and how to stop and appreciate the birds singing above you. And where is your place in this strange world? Um, so that has a similar vibe, but it's less academic and less botany than Robin Walker.
1: Still good life skills to have. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything we haven't talked about this episode that you would want to throw in? Um, anything we didn't get to or that maybe we skipped over?
0: Um, I want to just plug out there. If you want to learn more about um, Texas Parks and Wildlife and the Landscape Ecology Program, please find us on the internet and email us. We want to help people understand more about the landscape of Texas. So. Um, read all of our information on our website um, i want to make sure that people um feel uh and uh, feel like they are welcome on our website and welcome into our our GIS knowledge and that we want to interact with you yeah
1: and i'm a huge fan of texas parks and wildlife when i lived in texas i was an annual parks pass holder and um took advantage of the the public lands as much as i could so um Any state that you live in, though. I mean, I think every state has a a park system. If not, there's natural national parks and municipal parks, regional parks. So um, get out there and kind of see what what is on offer, because there's lots of cool programs. It's not just a park, you know, like like you said, you do interpretive walks and you do um, all sorts of historical information. So there's a lot of fun activities. Yes. Um, Well, we are going to move on to our green life hack. Um, This is the part of the show where we talk about a um, a item or an activity or something cool that we've discovered that can help us live more sustainably. And we want to share with our listeners. Um, So Wendy, what is your green life hack for us?
0: Oh, okay. I'm going to provide two if that's okay. Uh, So I'm going to provide one that's personal to me. Um, So personally, I'm trying my best to escape the fast fast fashion industry. So I choose to buy all of my clothes thrifted, but I also recognize that thrifting is getting more and more popular. So my favorite go-to thrift stores are now pretty picks in. So I've started sewing my own clothing and I try to use natural fibers like wool and linen. So if you do buy new clothing, try to use natural fibers to reduce microplastics in our waterways that would otherwise be made from polyester clothing. Clothing, I know, is a personal choice and an expression of your personality. So this recommendation may not serve everyone, um, but I hope that uh, you make more choices in the future to uh, buy more sustainably sourced products. And my second one is I'm, I'm sorry to drop this recommendation at the end of the episode because I feel like this could be a episode all of it in itself. But I want listeners to start thinking about eating more locally. So, simply, you could just start off by growing uh, locally or buying locally grown produce because it's fresher, tastier, and healthier. But I want listeners to someday maybe consider the possibility of incorporating fishing and hunting into your lifestyle. So, fishing hun- and hunting provides funds for conservation efforts in the United States and is the best way to source local, organic, and free range food for your family. And it is the most sustainably sourced meat. And protein you can get. Um, so specifically, if you're in the south, I encourage you to hunt feral hogs because they're invasive and they cause damage, and we hate them. <laughs> what uh, are they? They reproduce like five generations a year or something insane.
1: Yes. It's like odd.
0: With feral hogs, if you do not hunt seventy percent of the population every single year, they will increase in size.
1: I have um, been to some of the parks where they have torn up the ground, and, and it's it's incredible the damage they do. Like you know, the first time I saw it, I had, I didn't realize I was like, was there like, did a truck get stuck in the mud? And it was, no, it's hogs. They, they just tear up the entire ecosystem. It's, it's awful. So yes,
0: (laughs) it's awful. So to learn more, um, please refer to your local state, state's natural resources department, which would be happy to provide you with more resources to get you started. So, um, I, uh, thank you so much for, uh, your your uh, podcast. Um, I really appreciate you having me on because I you've had a lot of executive and CEO level um, people in sustainability and environmental sciences. So for me to come in as, as a scientist, mid-career, early career, um, to talk about how to get to become a scientist, that's really meaningful to me. And I hope that people listening can um, feel like my path maybe a little bit more approachable than someone who maybe is an executive level. Um, so thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, that that's exactly it. We want to have everybody on the show to just show the different levels and, and how people got, cause there's so many different journeys out there and, and hearing, um, how people can do different things, um, that there's different options out there is great. Um, and circling back to your first life hack, uh, fast fashion, that was actually our last episode. So if you're interested in learning more about that, um, you can take a listen. We, we actually did another one two years ago on fast fashion. So we did kind of an update last, last uh, month. So um, yeah, my green life hack um, to kind of go hand in hand with some of the stuff we've been talking about is just to uh, look into maybe like citizen science projects out there in your community um, a lot of times there's nonprofits that head those up. Uh, she mentioned there's master naturalist. Um, there's, you know, places like the natural, the national wildlife federation or Sierra club or, or different places that do like counts. Um, I know like when I, I went to uh, Colorado Bend state park and they talked about the bat count that they did coming out of the cave. So like they, you know, the, the parks need people to count animals or plants or whatever, or just kind of help track things throughout the seasons. Um, so that's really important work. And if you are able to devote some time to that, um, do, do that in your community because, uh, scientists can't be everywhere and the people on the ground are really the ones that see it. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you so much for being on and, uh, sharing your knowledge and your, your journey with us. Um, where can you be found online or, uh, you know, feel free to promote your your organization, whatever you want to promote here.
0: Great. Wonderful. So you can find more about our program by simply searching TPWD. So Texas Parks and Wildlife Landscape Ecology Program. Um, We are a small team of five people and we are all scientists. So we're still trying to get the hang of of social media and promoting ourselves while also doing this intensive data analysis. So um, you can find more information on us by searching for us on Google, um, feel free to email us. We have our email on our website there. Um, and introduce yourself to our Texas ecosystem analytical mapper that we have produced. It's our, it's our free mapping tool to learn more about the world around you. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you again for being on. Um, and you can find... Uh, me personally on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at head's going to be me. Um, And you can find the show also Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, also YouTube and anywhere you listen to podcasts. So um, please subscribe. If you haven't already like us, share us, give us a rate, five-star rating, a thumbs up, whatever they let you do um, to promote us. Um, Let your friends know if you have ideas for future episodes or topics, feel free to send us a message um, through our website or through social media. Um, and yeah, we'll take, that's how we get a lot of our, our topics actually is people reaching out to us or saying, Hey, have you thought about this person or this topic? So, um, it's really fun because you get ideas that you never would have thought. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, again, Wendy, thank you so much for being on. Thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day.